and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. If today's your first Sunday, it's actually a great day for it to be your first Sunday here at City Grace because we're, you know, right at the start of a series, so you're getting in very first lesson. Um, like I said, I, I do want to set us up today um, for the next couple of weeks, next few weeks, and what we're going to be talking about. So today's a little bit maybe more information, um, but I, I promise um, I'll do my best not to put anybody to sleep. All right, we'll, we'll do that. Maybe we can crank the AC down to like 40, something like that. We'll make sure we keep everybody awake. That's a, that's, that's a boring preacher trick right there. You just keep it at 40 and nobody ever goes to sleep when you preach. So um, no, we won't do that today. But uh, today we are here to talk about the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, is this going through all the things. I don't know why it's sliding along like that. There we go. We'll see if technology can help me out and not hurt me today. But um, today, uh, uh, talking about this, you know, you, you are, we are, we consider ourselves a spirit-filled church. And that kind of has a lot of different... <laughs> I said uh, we're a spirit-filled church, and Siri just came up with, hey, Siri, fill church. <laughs> i got to turn off Siri on my iPad. Um, but we're a spirit-filled church. We have Pentecostal roots for sure, um, going way back. And, and so the presence of the Holy Spirit, the, the kind of liveliness of a Holy Spirit-filled church is just something that um, we've always kind of enjoyed around here, and, and, and sometimes we kind of take for granted. Um, sometimes if you've been in Pentecostal circles for a while or Spirit-filled churches for a while, um, just the experience and the Holy Spirit and that kind of thing can kind of get taken for granted, and it's something that we're just, you know, we kind of dive into every Sunday or every time we get together without even really thinking of how it might appear to other people who come in for the first time, um, especially if they've never been uh, in a Pentecostal church or a Spirit-filled church. You know, you come in, especially like from, say, Catholic backgrounds or more conservative um, expression backgrounds, and you come in and people are, you know, clapping and waving their hands in the air, right? People are crying, and you're like, why is everybody so sad around here? It's just it's great. Back in the old days, we used to have people that would run around the church, and like nobody's chasing them, and they're running around the church, and you're wondering what's going on, you know, and all this kind of stuff happens. And so I just wanted to take a few Sundays, especially since our church is, you know, experiencing a lot of growth and a lot of new people added to the church, and just talk about what the Holy Spirit is and what it's all about. And, and even today, I'm going to talk about an experience that just really freaks a lot of people out called speaking in tongues. It's like, what in the world is all this stuff? But, you know, I grew up in a Pentecostal church, and so it never really bothered me. You know, I, I grew up and, and would tell people, you know, they'd ask me what, uh, what religion I was or denomination I was, and I'd tell people, you know, oh, well, I'm Pentecostal. And a lot of people never even heard that word, right? So you tell somebody you're Pentecostal, and they're like, oh, I'm sorry, is there, is there a treatment for that? You know, like, they, they don't know exactly what that means. And, and then especially here in Northern California, we're in, according to Barna Research, we're in one of the most unchurched regions or maybe the un, uh, most unchurched region in the whole of the United States, which there's good and bad to that. The good to that is that we have no real denominational baggage to deal with being Pentecostal, right? And, you know, people come to our church not really knowing that we're Pentecostal a lot of times, and they don't care that we're Pentecostal or used to be Pentecostal or our spirit-filled or used to, you know, whatever, you know, Methodist, it, Baptist, it doesn't matter. They're just looking for a Christian church. They come in, they love what they feel here, and they're like, great, you know, and, and who cares what, what label you use? I just like what I experience in this place, and I love it. I love it. 
when that happens. But for anybody that has some kind of like church background, Christian background, especially those that come from like the South and the Bible Belt and that kind of thing, um, you know, Pentecostals don't have the greatest reputation among some, uh, you know, church in some church circles, especially back up when you get in the hills, the hills in the hollers. You know, you get some Pentecostals, they, they get snake handlers, you know, and start passing around the snakes during church service and stuff like that. And don't worry, we won't do that during your first visit here. Um, I'm, I'm kidding. Jesus did not call me to go to a snake church. That is for sure. Just letting everybody know, no snakes. We're all good, right? Can I hear a good amen from somebody? Yes. And just for good measure, we don't do spiders either. We just, just, just none of that stuff. But no, uh, you know, and, and then again, there's the whole speaking in tongues thing. And that's weird, you know, and people say, well, do you believe in tongues? And it's like, well, yeah, I believe in tongues. Everybody has a tongue. Well, you know, yeah, but do you believe in speaking in tongues? And what does that mean? And then, you know, you look at it, and it's in the Bible, and it's a spiritual phenomenon that happens, but it's gotten this really kind of weird treatment. And it is anytime, anytime, whether it's speaking in tongues or any other kind of spiritual phenomenon, things can get weird. And some people can kind of claim authority on a subject or an experience. And, and some people who, you know, who say they've experienced this can feel, or they can act sometimes superior to other people who haven't had this experience. But I mean, let me say right off the bat, it, it is in the Bible, but this is a gift from God. Nobody owns the whole experience or the gift or the promise of speaking in tongues but God, period, period. If it's from God, then we can't stop it. And if it's not from God, we should stop it. Amen. And, 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 but when things get weird or when things kind of you know, get out of balance, the importance or the priority of the supernatural can sometimes just become overloaded and overemphasized. And if you're a longtime Pentecostal even, and when I'm talking about these things and it almost seems like I'm maybe like making an apology for the whole speaking in tongues experience and all of that kind of stuff, look, I'm not. But I, I, I do want to say, again, if you're a longtime Pentecostal, if you're very familiar, very comfortable with the whole experience of speaking in tongues, listen, don't forget about 1 Corinthians 13 and 14. Read those parts of your body. Every wedding you go to, God's trying to remind you. Like he, you know, he has the preacher read 1 Corinthians 13 at just about every wedding. Let me scratch that joke from the notes. It fell flat. But if it seems like I'm kind of de-emphasizing this, you know, this spiritual experience, read that. Go and study that because the spiritual and the supernatural experiences given by God, they were always a means to an end. They were never the end in and of themselves. Tongues was never supposed to be glorified. Tongues and the experience of speaking in tongues was never supposed to be emphasized as it has been in some places. So with out-of-balance overemphasis, people actually kind of chase speaking in tongues instead of chasing a relationship with God. They kind of chase these experiences, and, and, you know, and some people say they can teach you how to speak in tongues. And when we were kids growing up in Pentecostal churches, we used to make fun of that. Anybody ever heard Selima Honda by a Suzuki? See me tie, see my tie, see me tie my tie. Anybody know that one? No, we don't know that. Anybody ever grab your chin and make it quiver? No, just sounded like you're really cold. Preacher probably had the AC on 40. But, but the weirdness and the spookiness and the baggage and the idea of teaching people to speak in tongues, listen, it was never a part. It was never intended to be a part of what Jesus called the promise of what Jesus labeled as the gift from the Father. 
Like this is something, you know, a promise was never supposed to sound scary. A gift doesn't sound scary, right? Falling into some kind of hypnotic trance under the control of a ghost, that sounds kind of scary. So yeah, it matters the way that we talk about these things. It matters the way that we experience these things and the way that we experience or present this experience to everybody that's new into this kind of, you know, what was supposed to be a normal experience for the church. And, and to me, here, here's something, again, growing up with Pentecostal roots, the beautiful thing is that the experience of what the early Christians called baptized with the Spirit or being filled with the Spirit, this is something that's actually catching on across denominations. This is not something that's limited to Pentecostalism anymore. Just about every denomination has, has gained, I think gained is the right word, in the past maybe 10 to 15 years even, little sub-branches of their denomination where people are, are experiencing the filling, the infilling, or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Even in denominations where they used to ban the experience, they would actually ban the experience of speaking in tongues, um, they're starting to accept it now. And the Southern Baptist Church is probably the largest denomination, one of the largest, if not the largest denomination in the United States. And what's amazing to me is they used to ban or they would, I don't know if their official term was excommunicate, but they would basically excommunicate people from their denomination if you claim to have spoken in tongues. And it was amazing. Back in, It actually just happened in 2015. You can Google 2015 Southern Baptist Convention speaking in tongues. You'll find out. What was happening was all the Southern Baptists in the United States knew better than to speak in tongues. They all knew better. We don't do that. But what was happening is Southern Baptist missionaries were going to foreign countries, talking to different people and different cultures and different people groups, and just presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ, and these people that didn't know any better were starting to speak in tongues as a pretty normal part of their experience. Well, at first, the Southern Baptist leadership didn't really know what to do, so they started excommunicating them. Wait, this missionary is reporting this happening in their church? Okay, you're not a missionary of the Southern Baptist Church anymore. Cut off all their funding, just you know, cut off all their fellowship and all that kind of stuff, kind of isolated. Well, what happened is it started happening to so many different missionaries from so many different countries all over the world that they're like, hey, we got to change our philosophy and our stance because it's too widespread. Pretty soon we're going to run out of missionaries. And so in 2015, they actually voted at their national convention. We will no longer excommunicate you if you or anybody in your congregation has this experience of speaking in tongues anymore. It's just, it, to me, it's beautiful that God's Spirit is being allowed to move and operate freely just as Jesus promised and gave us the hope that it would. It's beautiful to me. Catholicism in South America was shrinking because of the Pentecostal experience. And Pope Francis, uh, within the past five years or so, has actually embraced the experience in Pentecostalism and speaking in tongues. And so now there are Catholics who speak in tongues and who have received the baptism and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. I think it's absolutely beautiful. I love it. Because I've been a weirdo my whole life. I'm tired of being weird. And so it's just beautiful to me. It's so beautiful to me that a Holy Spirit-driven experience promised by Jesus is going to happen wherever the Holy Spirit is allowed to drive. God is going to be God. And God is supernatural. So big surprise, there are supernatural aspects to a relationship with a supernatural God. 
And so as a pastor here at, at City Grace Church, I, I don't hope to lead you to an experience. That's not my goal. What I want to do is to lead all of us, everybody that I pastor, I want to lead you to a level of trust where you continually follow Jesus into everything that he has promised you can experience with him. That's what I want to lead you to. That's what I want you to get you to see. I want you to be so solid in your relationship with him that whatever he wants, you want because you trust that he only, only and ever gives good gifts. And so, you know, again, this whole idea of being baptized in the Holy Spirit or filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, I get why these things can be scary at first, but they should not be scary always. And, and yes, some Christians have experienced this speaking in tongues phenomenon, but again, for us, like, what does the tongue experience have to do with the Holy Spirit? What is it good for? How does it benefit us as Christians and believers? You know, what's the purpose that it serves in the church? Should you seek it? Should you ask God for this experience? Are you scared to? I get it. I get it because it sounds a little bit weird. And so over these next few lessons, I want to teach on the Holy Spirit. And I've been praying and, 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 you know, asking God, Father, open this up to everything that you have for us. Because if a gift comes from you, it has to be good. And if we don't feel that this gift is good, if we don't feel that way about it, then we don't understand everything that you want us to understand about it. So help us to understand it. We're not going to chase speaking in tongues over these next few weeks. That's not going to happen. I'm not going to line everybody up and bring a sport coat like I've seen some preachers do and like wave my coat at you and have you speak. That's not going to happen. Nobody's going to grab your chin and start shaking. Nobody has to say, sell him a Honda, buy a Suzuki. Like that's that's not happening. But what we are going to chase is the fullness of God's presence in our lives. And whatever God wants to do through His Holy Spirit, we just say, yes, Lord, and, and have everything that He wants us to experience. So I want, I want everybody that I pastor to experience everything that God has to offer. If you like my teaching, if you're here because you, you like this church family, everything that you see here, everything that you hear here is because of the Holy Spirit. There are times as pastor when I pray for you and I pray for your circumstances and things that you share for me, and I don't know what to, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to pray. But that's another advantage of the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us in the New Testament, that's one of the benefits. The Holy Spirit actually prays for us when we don't know what to say and we don't know what to pray for. It's the language of heaven in prayer time. It strengthens us and empowers us. And, and it's not just something for the pastor. It's for everyone. And you need it. So I'm going to talk about it over the next few weeks. And we're going to talk about the promise of God's Spirit. Now, there's so much to the life that's just full of God's Spirit and presence. It's, it's about being made new, and it's about purpose, and it's about living an other-oriented kind of life, and, and being part of God's plan to rescue all of God's, all of His creation. And if you think church or religion, like, I get this, but if you think church or religion is just kind of about not going to hell and going to heaven after you die, like, you're probably going to be a little bit disappointed with the day-to-day -day life of being a Christian. That's why so many people have walked away from Christianity. It's like I go to church and the guy tells me to shake his hand or say I'm sorry for some things and then I go home and it's like I think I'm good. Like I think I just got the golden ticket to the chocolate factory. I'm not really sure, but I, I did what they told me to do. But then it's like, well, how does this really apply to day-to-day -day life? What's this have to do with my Monday or my Tuesday or my Wednesday? And then, oops, Thursday I messed up again. I guess I got to go back to that place to get the guy to tell me that I'm okay again. And if that's your idea of Christianity, where it's just kind of this system for guilt management, 
Like you're living so far below what Jesus came to offer us. And, and so Jesus, you know, he kind of said it this way, which when I was younger scared the mess out of me because he was messing with my plan. He said this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, just because you buy a WWJD bracelet and put a fish bumper sticker on your car, like that's not really what it's all about. And that was a problem for me because that's what I was intending to do because I wanted to head north after I died. Can I hear an amen from somebody, right? And he goes on and says, look, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Like, these are church people. These are people familiar with the supernatural aspects of being Christians, right? And then Jesus kind of makes the crucial point. A lot of people are going to be talking to me like this, but this is what I'm going to say back. I never knew you. Which means the goal of the Jesus life, the goal of being a believer in Jesus Christ is about a relationship with your Creator, it's about a relationship between your soul and the maker of your soul. And it's to know and to be known by Jesus. And if you take just these few verses together, they're kind of a summary of the whole theme that the Bible is trying to give us, that the Father has on offer to us a relationship that empowers us each and every day of our life to live out and to work out and to do the Father's will for our lives. And we believe that. Your life has purpose. Your life was not by accident. Your life has meaning. Your life has design in it. We believe all of that. But there is also kind of a general will for humanity. And this is the Bible story. This is the story that the Bible wants us to know. And I'm just going to kind of spend a few moments here in this first lesson kind of talking about this. The story of the Bible is that God makes people with the ability to choose. He doesn't make robots. And then people with that ability to choose, choose to not trust and God's goodness. And then we people, and we know this about ourselves, right? This is us in line number three. We corrupt the good creation around us with bad choices. We do it all the time. You've done it in your marriage, or maybe your first marriage. You've done it in your relationship with your kids, or maybe your relationship with your parents. You did it on your taxes last April. Hello. We do these things, but then God loves us still and acts to win us back. So God creates this physical world, and in this physical world, he puts humans, people like you and me, created in his image to rule over his creation. He creates man, and then he creates, whoa, man. Right? He puts him in the garden, and everything's perfect, and the idea seems to be for, for man and woman to experience God's love and God's generosity and God's goodness, and then to kind of reflect that out and how they rule over God's creation. Genesis 1.27, right at the beginning of the Bible. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God. Everybody say, I'm a picture. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. So God, right from the beginning of the story, blesses people. He gives them good things. He gives them favor and strength and wisdom, and he gives them purpose. And then he tells them, listen, be fruitful, which means make babies. And then he tells them, fill the earth, which means make all of the creation around you make babies. 
Like, this is your job, humans, and then subdue it. Do all of this in a way so that nothing goes haywire. Use my order and reflect that out over the creation. Use my goodness and use that to rule over this creation. I put you in charge. Use my wisdom, my purpose, my structure, and use that to order the world around you that I have created. And he leaves humans in charge. And so God gives them supply and gives them blessing and freely gives them paradise and generously gives them good things all around them and then gives them purpose and reason and fulfillment and meaning for their lives. And verse 31 of chapter 1 tells us, and God saw all that he had made and it was very good. It was very good. Everything was good. But instead of believing the blessing, Instead of believing and accepting the evidence of God's goodness and the evidence around them of God's generosity and love, instead, the first man and the first woman believe a baseless lie about the character and the nature of God. And they believe that, in fact, God is not loving and God is not generous and God is not then so very good and God is, in fact, holding out on us because he warned us to not eat the fruit from one tree in the middle. We can have all the other trees But he said no to that one. So you know what? He must be mean and against us. And people confuse what's really good. And people get confused about who is really good. And when they choose to doubt God's character, that he's not good, people's moral compass just goes haywire. And good becomes evil to them. And evil becomes good. And blessing gets confused with bondage. And generosity gets switched out for greed and purpose gets lost in people pursuing power for themselves. And the reason for humanity, which was the relationship with God that should have enabled them to know who God is and how God is, and so to use that to rule over the creation that God had given them, it all devolved into brokenness and pain and evil within the human experience. And I'm talking like real evil. Like by chapter four, we're in chapter one here, into chapter one. By chapter four, you have a brother murdering his own brother. Like when people fell, they fell a long, long way. All because they got everything confused. They got everything confused. God had created people in his image, and God is good. But his image bearers, the picture of himself, are so twisted that nobody knows what the real picture of good looks like. Anymore, But now that God's created this people with the ability to choose on their own whether or not to be in relationship with Him, what's He going to do? He can't force them to be in relationship with Him. He can't violate the free choice that He had given to them. And so God comes up with a plan and says, I'll choose. He didn't come up with a plan. He already had a plan in place. But He said, I'm going to choose someone to be extraordinarily good too. I'm going to have a great relationship with this man and with his family. And the other people around Him are going to see how good I am, and I'm going to win back their trust. I'm going to win back their affection. I'm going to win back their belief in my goodness through my relationship and my blessing to this one man. And so God calls a man named Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and kicks off this incredible plan. And he tells Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And notice this last line. This is so powerful. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham was God's plan to win back you and me. Someone that lived 4,000 years ago 
That relationship that God created back then was God's plan. And God told Abraham, if you will trust me, if you'll have faith in me and believe me that what I am saying to you is true and I'm going to make it happen, I will bless you. And you will be so blessed that your blessings will overflow to the rest of my lost creation. And this will get their attention. And this will prove that I am good. And this will win them, not force them, but win them back into relationship with me. And listen, you've got to understand this. This is why this is so important, because this is the fundamental attitude of God toward everyone who is not in relationship with God. Did you know that Christianity is the only quote-unquote religion where the deity of the religion loves those who don't belong to the religion? Christianity is the only quote-unquote religion where the God, the deity of the religion, has actively sacrificed of himself in order to win the attention and the favor of those who are not actively converts in his religion? It tells us the fundamental attitude of God towards us when we were lost. And thank God that is his attitude toward us. Thank God we didn't need to earn his love or earn his favor. Because I don't know about you, but I never have done enough to earn his love and his favor and his blessing in my life. So this is what the Bible is trying to tell us. That God is trying to restore us into the kind of relationship with himself that enables us to rule our worlds as he has created us. To rule. This has been the purpose of man from the very beginning. This is what God is calling us all back to. And so he calls Abraham, and Abraham says, sure, I'll do it. And so God gets into a contract with Abraham and, and tells him this is going to continue through your descendants. And God has a wonderful trick up his sleeve. We're going to see that towards the end of this lesson. But fast forward a few generations to Abe's physical descendants, his grandchildren's grandchildren of their grandchildren. And, and there's good news that they've become so populous, they've, they've become so many that they've actually turned into their own race. And it's what we know as the Hebrews. They are the people that we know as the Jews or the nation of Israel. They're a nation now. But the bad news is, by the time we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 1, they're a nation of slaves. They're enslaved in Egypt, far from their homeland that God had promised them. And by the time we pick up the story, there's several generations into slavery, and it's all they've ever known. And you're thinking, well, wait a minute. This is supposed to be God's special people? And they're a bunch of slaves? Like, this is God's plan to make people so blessed that everybody else around is going to say, I want to be a part of that? Well, who's going to want to be a part of a bunch of slaves? Like, no, nobody's signing up for that, you know? But slavery in Egypt wasn't God's plan for his people Israel. And so God sends this man, this preacher man named Moses to the king of Egypt one day. And he goes up to the king of Egypt and he says, hey, God says, let my people go. And the king of Egypt looks at him. Pharaoh says, well, who's God? I don't know your God. And Moses says, well, you shouldn't have said that because now he's going to tell you who he is. And God proceeds to introduce himself through 10 terrible plagues to the king of Egypt. This, and God uses these ten miracles or these plagues to show the king of Egypt who he was, but also to show the people of Israel and remind them who he was, that he had not forgotten them, that he had not forgotten the contract that he had made with their ancestor Abraham to restore them to relationship and to ruling. And then the tenth plague, this tenth thing that happens, it's just, it's absolutely horrifying. And it's like God is saying to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, look, since you have done all of these injustices to my people, 
Since you have robbed them of generations of their future. Since you, and by this time, he had even taken, I mean, he had taken all of the male Hebrew babies and slaughtered them. It was infanticide on a large, huge scale across the whole nation of this slave nation of Israel. It was horrible and bloody and grotesque and evil. And God looked at that Pharaoh, that king of Egypt, and said, Since you have done all of this, then tonight, on this last night, the angel of death is going to pass through the land of Egypt, and the firstborn in every house in Egypt is going to die. Man, the story turns dark. It turns serious and it turns heavy and God means business. But in all of this, he gives his people a chance to escape the judgment that was intended for their oppressors. And he tells his people, look, here's my strange plan. And I know you don't really know me because I'm not as familiar with you and you're not as familiar with me as I was with your ancestor Abraham. But trust me in this. And he tells them that night, I want you to get a perfect lamb. Every house, every family, get a perfect lamb out of your flocks, and I want you to sacrifice it and cook the meat, and I want you to eat it, and then I want you to do something that doesn't make any sense to you, but trust me. And he tells them to take the blood of that lamb and paint it on their doorposts because he tells them that night when the angel of death passes through the land, on every house where he sees the blood painted over the doorpost, that angel will pass over that house, and the judgment of God will not fall on the inhabitants of that house. And that night, everyone who trusted God's strange plan put the blood of a lamb over their doorposts. And the the angel of death passed through the land. And when the angel of, uh, of God saw the blood of the lamb, he passed over that house. But that night, in the land of Egypt, and for the people of Egypt, those oppressors and those slave drivers, they lost their firstborn children from the poorest Egyptian all the way to the king of Egypt himself. And the Egyptians woke up in the middle of the night to horror and death and and sorrow. And they immediately went and told the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, get out of here. And not only do you need to go out, but here, here's all of our gold and silver and jewelry and wealth and riches. And that night, in one terrible act of judgment, God rescued a nation of slaves who had been horribly and brutally and grotesquely oppressed for hundreds of years rescued them in an impossible situation, the biggest jailbreak in history, pulled them out. And not only did he set them free, but he made them wealthy on that night. He showed them favor and status on that night. And beginning that night, Israel has celebrated the Passover festival every single year. For the nation of Israel, it's their, it's their 4th of July That's what it's all about to them. It's not just a religious thing, although it is based in their religion and in their theology. But Passover symbolized freedom from slavery for a nation. It symbolized the people becoming a free people, a free nation. It symbolized being gifted wealth and blessing and favor. And it was a memorial of the blood of a lamb that they they, they painted onto their doorpost so that judgment from God would pass over their homes. But God wasn't done with Israel. It wasn't enough that God had set them free. It wasn't enough that God had delivered them and rescued them from slavery because God wanted to turn them into a nation, but they didn't know how to be a nation. See, hundreds of years earlier, when they had come into Egypt, they were only this kind of large and growing family. But down through time, they had eventually so populated that they had turned into their own nation. Under slavery, they had become a nation, but they didn't know how to be a nation. 
What's our social system? What's our, we- our welfare system? What's our judicial system? What's our, our, all of these things, our military system? We don't know how to do that. And, and where do you even start in doing all of that? And so 50 days after the Passover, 50 days after that night of judgment where God rescued them, Jewish people would celebrate another festival called the Festival of Pentecost. And this is basically, in, in essence, what the word Pentecost means. It's, it's, it has to do with the number 50. It, it, it comes around because it would happen 50 days after the Jewish Passover. And on this 50th day after the Passover, the Jewish people received their Jewish law. And you may have heard before of the Ten Commandments. This is when they received the Ten Commandments. It's when they received the 603 other commandments. They had come to a mountain called Sinai, and there was fire and smoke and thunder as the presence of God came down over that mountain. And Moses, again, that one spokesman, had ascended up the mountain and met with God there, and God gave him these laws for the nation, these laws for the people. And this was where the nation of slaves, who had never been a nation before, received their constitution and their legal system and their civil ordinances. And the festival of Pentecost is all about them receiving what they needed to become something they had never been before. Now you have to hear this. You have to understand this. I'm not trying to bore you this morning with facts. This is important. The festival of Pentecost symbolized to them, them being given what they needed to become something that they had never been before. And the purpose of this, again, was to make them the envy of everybody around them. Don't forget God's plan. Don't forget that God is still reaching for lost humanity. Don't forget that God still intended for Abraham and his descendants to be blessed so that everybody else could see how blessed it was to live in relationship with God and be one back to God of their own free will. And normal human governments, they end up favoring the rich and oppressing the poor, right? We've seen this down through human history. We've seen it all over the world, all over the globe, throughout centuries. Tyrannical monarchies and empires and oppressive communism soul-crushing socialism and even capitalism, which has maybe done the best in human history. Even capitalism is flawed when it's ran by flawed people. But God's law was perfect for the governing of a people. It had social welfare built into it. It had a a debt release cycle built into it, where every seven years, everything they had borrowed was just forgiven. All of their debt was forgiven. Can I hear a thank you, Jesus, from somebody with a credit card in the house this morning. Imagine that, right? Like year six in June, I'm going to Nordstrom with my credit card because six months from now, baby, it's all... All right, we'll just leave that alone. Okay, but all of this stuff had happened. And the reason that that had happened was so that poverty could not be passed on generationally. It was always a fresh start for people. How many of us just wish there was a financial fresh start again... I realize I'm appealing to maybe our most basic desires here, but anybody just wish you could just get a fresh start? Like all the land you would have had to sell to pay off your debts was returned to you. Everything kind of got reset to zero. It had social rules to help people live together in peace and harmony and provision that limited the power of the powerful, provision that elevated the worth of the weak and the sick and the elderly. It was an amazing system of how to govern a nation. And Israel had it gifted to them because God had made a contract with their ancestor and they were going to be his plan. They were going to be so blessed by God that their lives would be a light to the world and win people back to relationship with God. So Passover had set them free to be restored into relationship with God. 
But Pentecost enabled them to become God's rescue people for the rest of humanity. And on the day that they received the law, they gathered around a mountain, and Moses goes up the mountain, and a cloud comes down with loud noise and fire, and God writes his law on tables of stone, and the people are afraid, and they're terrified, some of them, and they stagger back, and some of them say, no thanks, we're going to do things our own way. And 3,000 people, this is significant, this is not a small thing, 3,000 people on that initial meeting end up losing their lives when they turn away, and they reject God. And it's an awesome time. And for most of them, it's a happy time. But certainly for some of them, it's a somber time because God refused to let them worship their own idea of good. God refused to let them perpetuate their own idea of what God should be and what God should be like. And what's amazing about Israel's first, what we might call Pentecostal experience, is that it's a picture of what happened on the birthday of the church in the New Testament because the church was born on the day of Pentecost when the Jewish people were celebrating the festival of Pentecost. And the first believers in Jesus are gathered in an upstairs room. And the Holy Spirit comes down with loud noise and fire. And God writes his law on people's hearts. And that day, 3,000 people are added to the church. It's a reversal. It's a flip. And God Turn that giving of the first law to his first people upside down as he constituted a new people that he called the church. And these first members of the church, they were Jewish. They knew the stories of the Bible. They knew the stories of Moses and Passover and and Pentecost. They're 1,500 years after the first Passover, 1,500 years after the first Pentecost when Jesus was on the scene in first century Israel. Jesus had been crucified on Passover. His blood had been spilled on Passover. The one whose blood, if it is painted over the heart and soul of an individual, then that individual never has to fear the judgment of God coming on their lives. That the blood of Jesus Christ has the power to rescue us from slavery and to put us into relationship with our Creator and our Maker. See, none of this stuff is by accident. All of it God has orchestrated from the beginning of time and where Satan and evil and and just the will of men that is so distorted and broken, people we know and people we are that has tried to wreak havoc in this world. Throughout all of it, in every high and in every low, God stands behind the scenes, sovereignly in control of every event in human history, sovereignly in control of the things that come into your life. But for every high and every low and every shame and every regret, God has made a way for us to find freedom from these things that enslave us, freedom from the things that have robbed us of a future and taken away the future generations and the hope, even sometimes of our children. He has made a way to restore us into relationship with himself. And Jesus was the Passover lamb given for a new contract, a new relationship between God and humanity. And this is why when you read the New Testament about Jesus, it says to him just this really strange phrase in different ways, time and time again, even when Jesus is introduced to the public sphere, the one that came and announced him, John, we call him John the Baptist, said in John 1 and 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was the Passover Lamb, but not just for the nation of Israel 
but for every single one of us who comes to the realization that we have been the slaves of sin, that we have been the slaves of habits and addictions and attitudes and behaviors that rob the people around us of joy and hope and worth. And He has laid down His life at Passover to offer us the freedom to be set free and to be restored to relationship with our Heavenly Father. So Jesus is crucified on Passover, and it's not insignificant that He's raised on the third day. And it's not insignificant that when the story after His resurrection, which we find in what we call the book of Acts in the New Testament, the man that wrote that is a man named Luke. It's no accident that Luke specifically mentions the amount of days that the resurrected Jesus spends with His disciples. And he tells us, after His suffering, He presented Himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that He was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Crucified on Passover, raised on the third day, with them for 40 days, and then tells them to go to Jerusalem to wait for a few more days before the promise of the Father was given. Anybody want to guess how many days total it was? 50 days. It's amazing how it all works out. All of this was given by promise by God so many hundreds and thousands of years before. But while he was there alive with them, during that 40 days, Jesus spoke to them about the plan whereby God would become king over his creation again. That God's reign would come into reality through Abraham's real descendants. Not his descendants by physical birth, but by the people who trusted in God's supernatural plan, even when it didn't make sense. Jesus had promised, the Old Testament scriptures had promised that that one day God would fix broken things, that God would set all people free, that God would win people back to himself through the forgiveness of sins. This was the good news that Jesus preached. This was the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preached, that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name. And so Jesus, during this 40 days, is telling his his first disciples, his first followers, okay, guys, this is going to happen. And you're going to be the ones to launch this new thing out into the world. You've had the new Passover just a few days ago. But in order to be equipped for the purpose, in order to receive what you need to become something you have never been before, you've had Passover, but now you need Pentecost. Now you need Pentecost. Acts chapter 1, Luke tells us on one occasion while he was eating with them, He gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift. Everybody say the gift. My father promised, everybody say promised, which you have heard me speak about. Passover's already happened, guys. I'm going to be with you for 40 days, and then there will be a few days left until Pentecost. So go to Jerusalem and wait, because a gift is coming. I've been talking to you guys about it during my ministry. The promised thing, the thing that I've told you is on its way. It's coming. Verse 5, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The next verse says, somebody shouted, ghost, and they all ran from the room. No, that's not what happened. Because it was a promise. Because it was a gift. Because it was something that Jesus had told them they should look forward to. Jesus told them, you should be glad I'm about to die. Because if I don't die, you can't experience this new way of being in relationship with me. 
If I stay in this body, I'm limited in my interactions with people to wherever my body can physically be. But if I die, and if I ascend to the Father, I promise you that I'm going to send back to you a gift called the Holy Spirit. And this is going to be the way that believers all over the world, that creation all over the world, that people broken and hurting all over the world, all over the globe, not just in my time, but in generations to come, thousands of years into the future, eventually one day in a city called Fairfield, in a state of California, in a country that you guys have never even heard of, speaking a language you will never hear on your own. I am going to give my presence as a gift, and I promise I promise that it's going to happen. See, they had already experienced water baptism, but Jesus was telling them about another kind of baptism. And remember the plan, remember the promise to Abraham and through Abe and through the rest of creation, you know, through Abe for the rest of creation, the church had now become Abraham's descendants. And listen, I don't want to get too technical, but you got to see this. And I'm a preacher, and this is kind of preacher nerdy, I get that. But just stay with me for a little bit, all right? Ushers, turn the air conditioner down. Okay, so Paul wrote to some Galatian Christians. Again, first century. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through how good of a person you are. Oops, exactly. I got the wrong translation. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. And now for you believers who have faith in what God has done through Jesus Christ, for all of you who so believe in it that you have allowed yourself to be baptized into what we call the body of Christ, into what we call the church, you're all become one. And now for you guys, there is neither Jew nor Gentile anymore. It doesn't matter your status in life, slave or free. It doesn't matter if you have money or don't have money. It don't matter if you're black or white or somewhere in between like me, a beautiful caramel color. Can I hear an amen from some? It doesn't matter men, women. It does not matter rich, poor, Republican, Democrat. I don't care if you come from a good family or from a family you can't wait to forget. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Nothing is earned. All is freely given. This is God's plan from the beginning. You are loved by your creator. You are loved by your maker. You are invited back into relationship. And now you have become one. And he goes on. And again, when you read this stuff without knowing the history, none of it makes sense. But look what he says in the last verse of this chapter. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's. Oh, oh, wait, wait. God's taken us all the way back to the beginning of the book, all the way back to the plan, all the way back to the heartbeat of God from the very beginning, that he had to make you and me with the ability to choose to love him. But he knew that we would choose wrong because you're you. Because I'm me, hello. But he loved us still. But he loved us still but he loves us still. Do you? This is so convicting to me. This is so convicting to me. 
Do you know that you can come today? You can do it now, but typically we all wait till we're done. So just if you don't want to appear awkward, you know, just wait till we're done. But do you know that you can come today and ask God to forgive you of every sin and every injustice you've ever done to somebody else, and you will be forgiven today even though He knows you're going to do it again? See, He doesn't just love over our past. And He doesn't just accept us in the present. But His love is so incredible. His love is so unlike any love that we know or experience or give to the other people in our lives that hurt us and do us wrong and offend us that His love has even made provision for our future failures. Pastor, be careful, because what you're going to do is get somebody here who's just going to think, well, it doesn't matter what I do then. God's always going to... You know what? You might be right, but I can't talk against what the Bible says, and that's the truth of what the Bible says. He has forgiven your past. He's forgiven you in the present, and he's already given the promise that if you're repentant, he'll forgive you in the future again. God's grace is truly amazing. I'm never going to handcuff it. I'm never going to limit it. It's the grace of God that I needed. It's the grace of God I need, and it's the grace of God I will need again tomorrow. Come on and give him praise for amazing grace in this room. Listen, you've got to know this. You've got to understand this. And this is why spirit baptism is so important to the Christian experience. This is why water baptism is so important to the Christian experience. And listen, if you haven't been baptized as an adult because of your faith in Jesus Christ, because of your trust in what he did on the cross, I'm telling you, you know, you, you've got to trust in what he has done. Trust the blood of the lamb to save you from the judgment. Of, you've got to trust it. You've got to trust it. But listen, if you haven't done that yet, I have really good news. In a few weeks, we're having Baptism Sunday around here. And if you've never been baptized in Jesus' name before, Baptism Sunday is the perfect time for you to get baptized. Because baptism is so weird. It's weird. A bunch of Christians... Get a tub full of water. We use a horse trough because the city wanted thousands of dollars to put in a baptistry. We fill up a horse trough with water. We hook up the hose to the janitor's closet. It's not holy water. It's janitor water. Well, we do that because there's a hot thing on there. When I, you know, not everybody likes getting baptized in cold water. <laughs> that makes that whole Holy Ghost thing better, though. It's like, <laughs> but we do it. But I remember when I got baptized, I think I've told this story before. It was in Jim and Carol. Where's, where's Alicia? Alicia's here. It was in your mom and dad's jacuzzi in your backyard. It was. And it was about 20 of us. We all gathered around. I had to change into some clothes and get into this jacuzzi. And somebody, I think it was Jim, Alicia's dad, had turned the temperature up to about 290 degrees. Yeah. If somebody had thrown in a couple of potatoes and a carrot, we could have had stew after I was done. And I got in there with like 20 people around, and everybody's looking at you. And everybody knows you're in there because you're a sinner. Stop looking at me. You did it too. 
Everybody's watching. But man, man, hmm. When I went under that water, it wasn't the water. Certainly wasn't the chlorine or the 290 degrees. I don't know. Maybe they're trying to boil the sin off me. Just like, you know. When I went under that water, believing and trusting Jesus, this doesn't make any sense at all. These people are crazy looking at me, just like, Jesus, I trust you. Went under that water, and when I came up out of that water, he had promised that all of my sins were washed away. Oh, come on, does anybody remember? Come on, does anybody want to give him praise and thanks? Come on, because you trusted, because his promises are true, because his grace is unfailing, because his mercies are new every morning. Baptism Sunday, that's different. That's different. We put that trough over there, and yeah, everybody can still see you, you know, but we told Dustin next, you know, on Baptism Sunday, you have to bounce around extra high, you know, just like we're going to try and distract people. Like maybe if you want, we'll put a couple of the larger brothers in front of you so they can kind of block the view if you want, you know. We'll do whatever we need to do to make you comfortable, but I'm telling you, if you've never experienced it before, you need this. You want this. You want this. So again, in that card on the back of the seat in front of you, fill it out, drop it in the silver box, let us know, I want to be baptized. Or just tell me you want to talk about it, you want to find out more. Go to our website, citygrace.church, you'll find a link there for Baptism Sunday. Sign up, get information about it. But Jesus is telling, this is how you become part of this new movement. This is how you become part of God's new people. You're Abraham's children because of your faith. But now your God is turning you into his method for rescuing his creation. You need to become, we are called to become something we have never been before. And we are going to need some help. And Jesus was telling his first disciples, you're going to need some help. And so go to Jerusalem. Passover is already done. The blood has already been shed. The forgiveness of sins is already out there and on offer. That's already taken care of. But this is a gift, a promise from my Father for after that. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, in Benicia, Fairfield, Vacaville, Suisun City. To all the ends of the earth, there's a job for you to do. Come on, musicians, give them hope. I'm taking too long this morning. There's a job for you to do. The Father still has kids and circumstances that were never meant to endure. There are still people in our world, in our families, on our jobs, in our social circles, next door to us, live behind. You know the guy that lives behind us, his dog's always barking at 2 a.m.? Like, God's called you. With mercy and kindness. To report that dog to the pound. That's what God's called you to do. But I need you to go tell them. I need you to go tell them that your creator loves you. That your maker has never forgotten you. And although you're living in bondage and in captivity, and things are dark right now and painful, and it feels like you have no hope and no future, that God 
has a plan for your life to rescue you from those things that have enslaved you, to set you free from the things that you keep doing and saying that are just bringing all kinds of hell and havoc and pain into your life. This is what the church exists for. This is why we are the church, to be His witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, that my life would shine in Fairfield, that your testimony would be known in Susun, that your testimony would be known on your job, that your testimony and your story and the freedom from the pain and the guilt and the shame of your past, that it would shine forth like a beacon of light in your family, among your friends, and among all of them. He has provided freedom from slavery, but hello, church, He's provided so much more. He's given us the power to become something that we have never been before. Jesus, help us to believe and look forward to the baptism of your Holy Spirit, to earnestly expect and wait with great anticipation for the day that we are filled and inundated with your Spirit that it would rise up in us, that it would be like rivers of living water flowing from us, flowing out of our mouths, flowing out of our hands and our feet and our actions and our behaviors and our words. Jesus, call us to be your church, I pray, because there's so many people that still need to know what we know. They still need to experience what we have experienced. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.